Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Just wanted to remind you guys that every Sunday night after each episode of Big Little Lies, the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes break down everything we just saw in our new after show called Big Little Live in partnership with Buick. And after you check that out, make sure to subscribe to the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, a weekly NFL podcast with frequent contributions from her beloved dog and sidekick named Lenny. You can subscribe to the Mina Kime Show with Lenny on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to watch Big Little Live every Sunday night on Twitter. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the executive chef of Momofukukawi, Unjo Park. This is our third time on the show. This time, it's the post-opening diaries. We've done two pre-opening diaries of Momofukukawi in Hudson Yards, and you've seen sort of the snapshot of where she's at from anxiety and sort of freaking out, basically, about opening her first restaurant and the pressures involved, and the trials and tribulations to sort of finding your voice. And there's this moment before you open up a restaurant where everything that you felt was negative becomes positive. You, you believe that things can happen. It's this most intoxicating feeling, even though just like a week before you were thinking it's all going to end badly. And I've always found that in openings of restaurants. And in the second installment of the pre-opening diaries, you're, you're getting a sense that Unjo is beginning to see what she can do and what her team is capable of as it gels with the front of the house and Arako, the GM, and the team at Kawi that runs the floor. They got a great review a couple weeks ago by Ryan Sutton and Eater and Pete Wells of the New York Times. And I think for a lot of people, it would be like a time for celebration and to sort of sit back and relax. But this is the most dangerous period, I think, in a restaurant's career or a trajectory is the post-review because it's almost like winning a bunch of games in the NFL and you start off like 6-0. and But if you don't get better, you may not make the playoffs. And things are only going to get harder from here on out. And we go into detail, and I'm going to not talk too much about it, but I think this is the hard part right now. And this is what makes the culinary universe one of the dumbest jobs in the world, but also the best. Because like, I think every job out there, the more successful and the more experience and the more wisdom you acquire, the more difficult the job becomes. And the best way I could describe this, if this was like a video game or like Tetris or Fortnite, which I've never played before, I think players would be really upset if they got deeper and deeper into video game and it got easier and easier and easier. People would be like, what the fuck? You expect it to be harder. Yet, I don't know why in the culinary world and restaurants, we expect success to be met with easier expectation. And I'm not feeling good. That's not about what I'm trying to say. I just, I feel like Unjo is very aware that she's got to make some changes. She's got to find work-life balance. She can't burn her team out. And being present is the hardest thing because she still has to help build a culture. We will be there to help her do it. And it's not easy. It's one of the hardest things in the world. I'll shut the fuck up. This is my conversation with Unjo Park. Again, kudos to her and the whole team. I think she is going to really change the game, not just for Korean food, but food in general, because she's just that good. So uh, please check her out. Check out her food. And uh, peace. All right. I am with Chef Unjo Park of Kawi. This is about a week after your first review of your entire life as an executive chef. Mm -hmm. What was it like to have Eater and New York Times to come out on the same day? Very nerve-wracking. It wasn't a good day. I didn't know what I was feeling. It was very numb. (laughs) Numbing day. Why was it so numb? I guess I didn't know what to expect. I thought about whole situation from worst review to the best review. And I just didn't know what we were getting. And I didn't know what, after that review comes out, how I would feel. And for about two weeks, you knew that it was coming out. Mm-hmm. We've been getting photo shoot interviews. There was something interesting that you told me 
when I can't remember which photographer asked, but they were in the restaurant for a while, taking photos of the dishes on your day off. It's probably the last place you want to be on your day off. And they're asking you to smile. (laughs) They're saying, smile, Joe. So I'm posing. I'm pretending to be plating a dish. And the photographer, she asked me to smile. I was like, Honestly, I really can't smile because like, I don't want to look like an idiot when the bad review comes out and there's a big photo of me smiling. So I just wanted to prepare for the worst. So it was hard smiling <laughs> for the photo shoot. Thoroughly unenjoyable process, the entire review prep. Mm-hmm. Photo shoot, fact check. How can you be prepared for this, right? Yeah, especially that I've never done it before. So like, I had no expectation and didn't know what to expect. Everything, like from the interview to even photo shoot. And let's back up a little bit. Since we last spoke to you, you were about to open up the restaurant. Mm -hmm. We sort of had the arc of you spending a lot of time prepping out in your head what you thought Kaiwi was going to be and how that was useful, but ultimately a waste of time. And it really took the last sort of two weeks to find your voice and to find some comfort. I know that it's been incredibly difficult. Can you talk about your feelings since you've opened up, Kawi? What you've learned? What has been the most surprise? What's been the biggest disappointment? I would say biggest thing that how Kawi is turning is it's becoming more, more of a Korean restaurant than I ever expected. First, I wanted to do some kind of my previous experience as a non-Korean food and then bringing into Kawi. But now it's more of um, like a Korean-American food like myself. And I'm learning a lot about myself as a manager, how I lack. Um, what do you lack? My biggest one is communication. Not with our manager team, but with myself to how to speak my thoughts. Like just like right now, you know, like it's really hard for me to express my thought through my word. So still struggling. It's incredibly difficult to do because you have like probably ordering you still have to get done. You have an HR meeting or review and then simultaneously you got to finish this dish and then you see a cook across the line doing something they shouldn't be doing. How do you communicate everything at the same time? Like how do you grow in that? environment. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I just started jotting everything down for the day. So I have so many things going on. So like every day I fill up a paper and then I need to like check mark. So like, okay, oh shoot, like I had to talk to the dishwasher or I have to check out the payroll, you know? So that helps a lot. But trying to be honest and not pretend that I know everything is a big learning experience right now. (laughs) Why do you mean you have to pretend that you know something? What do you mean by that? Because they work for me and I want them to feel when they come up to me that I have a solution for them. But I don't. Not all the time. And being able to be vulnerable in front of our cooks, not just the managers, they see me as a human and they see us as a growing team together. Not just me pushing them or me becoming something else. And would you agree being vulnerable and transparent and showing failure is harder than being perfect? It's very hard and it's very personal too. But I feel better now because we all work together and everyone feels comfortable around them. So it makes it easier to be more honest. Can you talk a little bit about your ability to assess talent now from pre-Kawi to post-Kawi? Who do you think you want to build your team around now? Do you want to build on someone's resume or do you want to build on... Oh, um, I've learned a lot during lots of interviews and people, you know, like they're so great during interview and they're so enthusiastic and their resume is amazing. And they will start a week later And it's a totally different person. And I have the same experience where a cook, they suck at the interview, they stumble, but you could tell that they really want to be part of the team. 
So we're like, okay, let, we're so short. Let's just give it a try. One of the person is a junior sous chef right now. And we have a lot of, like, uh, we cook that started off, but then we push, push, push. And then now, like, they're, like, the one of the strongest cook. What prevented you from promoting people that were more inexperienced before? I just had that idea of having that perfect junior sous chef or the perfect sous chef. But you have to grow together. It's not like, I'm not perfect, so why should I expect junior sous chef to be start off perfect? It's really hard. Like People, dealing with people is like the hardest thing. And again, this is something I tell everyone now in Momofugu. It has nothing to do with cooking once you're becoming a chef. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so hard. You got to be a chef because you're good at cooking. Now you got to learn HR labor and laws. You got to do scheduling in a different way. You got to do food costs. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now I'm doing everything that I'm not good at. And you have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. I really think you have to be careful about that because this. And I've seen this before, including myself. When you are struggling to learn in a kitchen, the one thing you hate to do is to not to cook and to not to create and not to make new dishes. And to discipline and to do that kind of work sucks. But the worst work, by far the worst work, is the paperwork. The mundane office work. Mm -hmm. That sucks the soul out of you. You got to be careful not to only do that. Mm -hmm, For sure. Because the reason why you get stuck doing that, even though you hate it, it is the bane of your existence. It's the only thing you can learn how to control. You got to be very careful. Mm-hmm. And that only makes you more unhappy because now you do the thing that you hate the most, but it weirdly gives you some sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. You should really try never to do it. Yeah. I mean, I'm training our sous chefs to take some part of the admin work, but I do have this anxiety feeling every day ever since the review came out. Like, I have to change the menu. I have to change the menu. So like this something you and I discussed. I told you that I don't have time to R&D. And you told me, pick a time, the busiest time between lunch and dinner, four to five, work on a dish. I know it sounds crazy, but just work on it and then… You have to force yourself to do something that you don't want to do. And that's the last thing you want to do is make a dish when it's pandemonium in the kitchen. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've been trying. If I didn't get to do it by five, like when sous chefs are working service, I would just stand in the back of the kitchen and try to come up with the dishes. So that helps a lot in a way that I feel I'm kind of part of back in the kitchen. I'm trying to put my foot down back in the kitchen. But that anxiety feeling is like getting stronger and stronger. And yeah, now that reviews out, like... I feel like I have to start all over again. It's like back to square one. And that's what's so fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm at right now. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. And you have to continue to do that over and over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, like my friend chefs would stop by to the restaurant. They would like congratulate me. They're like, congratulations. Like, how are you feeling? Like, I feel like everyone's so happy for me. And I don't know why, but I'm not happy. (laughs) Why aren't you not happy? It's not that I'm unhappy it just I have more more worries more anxiety more stress more good stress to worry so yeah when people are like congratulations how are you feeling I'm just like yeah you know it's good but I think they know they could see in my eyes before we go deeper into the review I want to mention one thing And this is how we would talk normally. It just happens to be on a podcast. Mm -hmm. I was pretty critical of you because I saw you working. And you were working working in a way that was good for you and not good for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I felt that you were having your team work in a way that was oftentimes not reflective enough, not Mm -hmm. smart enough. Mm -hmm. They were just doing work to do work. Mm -hmm. And you were working a lot. Mm -hmm. Many, many, many hours. Mm -hmm. We were just working. Like, you know, we just wanted to get the service done. We wanted to break the record. We wanted to do bigger covers every night. We just wanted to prove to everyone that we opened the restaurant and we were operating. Can you tell them what I was telling you to do? Um, Cut the covers to very, very minimal. 
and everyone, including myself, in the first time I heard it, I couldn't understand. I'm like, how can we train our cooks when we're cutting our covers? Like, how can we push them when we're only doing 100 covers in six-hour service? Um, but talk to you. Also, I talked to Sarah. We're going for quantity. And what we should have definitely focused on was quality. And to train them properly how to execute each dish, how I wanted to present it. So, yeah, it helped a lot at the end. Like, our team got stronger. Taking that cover slower, we, we've definitely focused more on the menu. This is going to be something, again, I would tell you if we weren't on a podcast. And if I saw you having a hard time communicating, maybe, maybe even like struggling through frustration. The reason why I wanted you guys to slow down. Someone can't say that they care. They got to show that they care, particularly cook. And I believe in the beginning stages of a restaurant, the cultural components are more important than the numbers. And it's an unfortunate part of our business that oftentimes you have to open up a restaurant because your numbers, you need to make the numbers work because you're burning cash. And I made sure that we had enough runway, thankfully, that we could burn cash because what was most important to me was the cultural aspects. Could we teach your cooks? Could you teach your cooks how to care, how to learn from their mistakes? And hopefully it was just busy enough where it wasn't like working at a culinary school restaurant mm-hmm. where you just were like four people per station and it's total fucking bullshit because it's not real life. Mm-hmm. And people just mail it in because it's like, what well, doesn't worry because it's not real. You need to have the right amount of busyness so people can go down in flames. Mm-hmm. And I felt that was just the right of busyness, but somehow we weren't teaching people how to actually care about something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to tell you over and over again is, Joe, this is the time to show them how to care about something. Why would they know? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this, again, so fucking hard, mm-hmm. both from Ara in the front of the house and on the back of the house. It was the kind of busyness where if you got in the weeds, you could easily get out. But it was just enough the weeds to teach your team just how bad it could be. Mm-hmm. And again, not so busy where, you know, they couldn't get out of it. And that was my challenge to you is could you show them how to care? Mm-hmm. And I think that what happened, what I was, I wouldn't say unhappy, but I expected it. You wound up making a lot of the decisions for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, cooking the dishes that mattered the most, whether a VIP came in or not. Or if someone was trying to figure something out, you would just do it for them. And I've been there. I'm a master of that too. We were like, I don't have the time for you to flounder and to like fuck it up. I'll just do it myself. And that's the hardest thing that I think a lot of us, including myself, have to get better at is like having the patience not to intervene. Mm -hmm. And I think also promoting our strong cooks to junior sous chef, I think that shows a lot to the other cooks to think that if they work and care enough, they can become something within the restaurant. Because it's not about if you're the best cook in the world, do you care the most? Mm-hmm. And you were just overwhelmed with work. And I felt so bad and I just wanted to help out. And I know that we were all there, Sarah, myself, Josh, and JJ, to help you as much as we could. But you were still finding your voice and you were working like a lunatic. <laughs> you were working so crazy, Joe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we need to back off. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when we told you to slow it down? It was like, slow it down. Um... To find time for yourself for, as jokey as it sounds, personal life. I mean, as much as I want to, as much as I want to sleep in or just walk around the city. There's so much shit that has to be done. And of course I want to sleep, but I just felt like I had to be there all the time or or it's not going to be what I want it to be. So everyone overworked. And I, I blame myself because I think I set that example and everyone followed. I think that what you wanted to do, and I think you're still trying to get better at, is show people, okay, this is how we do it. Is there a better way? Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by working dumb. It's not just to do it the same way that happened before. 
Can you have some kind of reflection and awareness to see maybe there's a better way to do this? How can I save time? Mm-hmm. And you can't think that way when you're chased by time. And that's when like, you really need to slow down. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Simply Safe. There are over 2 million burglaries reported every year. That's one every 13 seconds. Insane. But what's actually crazy is that only one in five homes have home security. Maybe because most companies really don't make it that easy. I have never really taken home security seriously until recently now that I've started a family and people that know me know I almost never even lock my doors. Because it's too confusing, it's always been too expensive, it takes too much time, and I just don't know if it was ever worth the hassle. But that's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24 7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost. And they make it easy on you no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Around the clock monitoring is just $15 a month. Plus, It's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. No wonder it's won a ton of awards from the likes of CNET and the New York Times wire cutter. Visit simplysafe.com slash Chang and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now to simplysafe.com slash Chang so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash Chang. simplysafe.com slash C-H-A-N-G. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by the Marine Stewardship Council. What if you could eat seafood to save our oceans? What if there were seafood options in your local grocery store that are as good for you as they are for the planet? Well, there's a not-for-profit whose sole mission is to make sure that the wild-caught seafood you love is around forever. It's the Marine Stewardship Council, and it's the little blue fish logo on seafood packaging that means that the fish was caught responsibly. Whether you're enjoying canned tuna, fish sticks, or grilled salmon, when you find the MSC Bluefish logo, you can feel good about what you're eating. Even your furry friends can eat responsibly with the MSC certified pet food. My dog, Savvy, loves cod skins, and I feel a lot better knowing that it's got the MSC logo. He does too, I'm sure of it. Your small step at the grocery store can make a big positive impact on our oceans. Enjoy the seafood. You'll love it today, tomorrow, and always. Choose the Bluefish. Follow along on social media at MSC Bluefish. That's MSC Bluefish. And now, back to the show. So, you know, I know that we got criticism. <laughs> I think the New York Post wrote an article saying that we were being snotty because we were preventing people from walking in. And mm-hmm. we are so lucky that people wanted to eat here. But I knew that this is a marathon. The tortoise wins the race. Mm-hmm. Or as I joke out of the Pete Wells review, the minivan wins the race. And it was something that I did not want to take lightly that we have one shot at this. And of course, we want to feed as many people as possible, which I never understand. Like, there's something so stupidly gung-ho about doing 300 covers. Mm-hmm. No. Quality. We'll get there. Let's get it right first. And then we were understaffed. Very would you agree that the whole culinary world, it seems, is understaffed? Oh, for sure. Um, I reached out to the chefs within Hudson Yard. I was like, chef, like, do you have anyone that you're not going to hire? We'll take them. And one of the chefs said, I've been working garment station double for two weeks. So everyone is struggling. And we all have to make do because it's not just Hudson Yards. This is an entire industry mm-hmm. in New York City. People are always looking for cooks. Not just anyone that's talented, literally just anyone. Mm-hmm. And it was a tough decision to be like, Joe, we need to close a day. And then, thankfully, getting to work with the related team and the owners of the building, they actually had the great recommendation to be like, close another day. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? I felt like you. You're like, what? That's like fucking up my world a little bit. To shut down for almost two months, Mondays and Tuesdays. So we could get some balance. When I told you that was happening, what was going through your head? I was so excited. I was like, God gave me another chance. (laughs) There are so many things I wanted to get done and so many things I thought I could get done. But honestly, like, not much. 
A lot of interviews where we hire and then we lose people. Manager teams quitting. Um, there are a lot of stuff happening. So it was demoralizing. I would say discouraging. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's a better word. So I was like, we need to slow it down instead of trying to work faster. And which is why this business, I think, can be so dumb, is that oftentimes you don't have the chance. And I wanted to make sure that you were provided every opportunity mm-hmm. to learn. So we slowed it down against the wishes of our servers mm-hmm. and some other people. We decided to shut it down up until when? Like, what, a couple more weeks? Um, no, we're open seven days starting next week. <laughs> are, we, are we in a better place now to do seven days? Honestly, no. <laughs> How are we going to do that? I'll figure it out. But all I know is that our cooks are definitely better positioned. Now, with our very limited cooks, each service, everyone knows that they have to have everyone's back. So the culture is definitely there. The teamwork is definitely there. So I'm not worried. We just need a few more bodies. A few more bodies. Yeah. So if you're listening. <laughs> we're hiring. We're hiring. And if I was a young cook and I wanted to work for someone I thought was going to be one of the best chefs out there, now's the time. <laughs> um. But it's really hard to think patiently when you're like, fuck, we just need people. That's what happened. Um, it was more of sous chef running the service than cooks because we were so down. So after one open call, I just hired a bunch of people, like six cooks, and put them in a new station. Just training them to open up for lunch service was so hard. But realizing that they're not getting proper training, which makes them unhappy, and then they would leave. And I saw that what I was doing was totally wrong. And I was part of the reason why they quit, that there was no proper training. So still learning, but now we are definitely taking it slow for hiring people, even though we are still looking. And you could tell like when someone is properly trained and how the knowledge and the philosophy of what this restaurant is, is passed to the cooks and then how they bring it to their station and their, their mise en place. It shows a lot. Yeah, you're like indoctrinating them mm-hmm. with the with the value system. And you can't do it all at once. And that was really, that was probably the hardest thing to learn, I think, ultimately, was, wait, I got to do all the things that are opposite of what I think I should be doing. Everything's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's so hard. And... This is why it's sort of like the Sisyphus-like challenge. Every day gets harder, and you just sort of have to accept that. But that's sort of what makes this job dumb and ultimately the best job in the world. And we're all going to be here for you till you can like feel good about it. But the fact is, how you want to run this and what you've grown from is amazing, really, to watch. And that all of these challenges that are presented to you, you're not blinking. You're like, okay, I may do this again, then I'm going to learn from it. So we have, you know, closed the restaurant down two days. We're opening it again for seven days soon. And um, we were trying to limit the numbers so you could find your voice as to how you want to operate. Now we've been reviewed and we got reviewed way sooner than we thought we were going to, right? And simultaneously, you're teaching all these cooks a completely different cuisine. Mm -hmm. This is fucking hard, Joe. (laughs) You have all these resumes of people that work in at French restaurants and where they're like, wait, what is this? How do I pronounce this uh, ingredient? All right. It's very norm to see the guests will be like, what kind of restaurant is this? Or what's this? Can you describe the menu? Because I don't understand anything. And it's it's very fascinating, especially from the open kitchen to see the guests eat. And, you know, like non-Korean or non-Asian people eating kimbap and rice cake and enjoying it. it it's very fulfilling. With the reviews, partly why I was a little bit worried is this is not the restaurant that's going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. You and I both know that. And I think you were like, this is how I'm going to be judged. This is not it. I, this is incomplete. Right. I was so frustrated because I'm like, we just opened two months ago. Like, come on, like, give me some time, you know? Menu wasn't where I wanted to be. We were still close two days. We were still capping our numbers. We're still trying to figure it out. And when I got an email saying, 
your reviews are coming next Tuesday. I was like, I don't know. I was like, okay. I don't know what I should be feeling. Because you know where you want to take this whole thing. So let the audience know where you want to take Kawi. This is your opportunity to tell the whole world where you want it to be in five, 10 years. And we're in Kawi right now. So they're preparing for service. So if you hear shit, mm-hmm. that's why. Um, if I want to take Kawi to 10 right now, Kawi's at two. It, we're just beginning. There's still so much to change. Do you think that people should bet against you? I don't know. I didn't think about that. I know I want to change people's conception of Korean food. and Why? I think it's growing. I mean, it wasn't my biggest intention for Kawi, but the more I'm cooking, the more I'm thinking about how people want to see Kawi as. And if I could change that one thing, like that Korean food can be done in this way where Kawi is doing, then I, I think I'll be happy with it. Did you grow up with a chef like yourself as a role model? No. Who did you grow up with your role model? Hmm? Who were your role models? As a chef, um, I grew up, I didn't have cable, so I grew up watching PBS. Mario Batali, Lydia, Ming Tsai. And then on a professional level, you work for them. Mm-hmm. Chef Thomas Keller, Dave Chang. Was anyone a Korean-American female? No. Did anyone that you grew up looking at have your kind of resume? No. So I remember now that we said, just think 10 to 15 years later, some Korean-American girl from Bucks County can look up to you and think that Korean food could be done in a certain way. That's my goal. And that they're like, wow. Unjo's got this restaurant, it's got this going on and that going on. But they can follow your career and be like, it can be done. Mm-hmm. And you can do it by being you and cooking food from your heart, not from a cookbook. Right. Not from some bullshit Top 50 Awards show. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then no review is going to fucking matter. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth. And I was like, it could be one star, two stars, three stars, four stars. doesn't fucking matter. Because like, if you get to that point where you can be honest with yourself and cook the food that you want to do and have people love it and tell the story that you want to tell, it doesn't matter if people get it or not. You're just doing you. And that's what we've talked about over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. By being yourself and when you are closer to doing that, that's going to be a sight to behold. And that's going to be the kawi that people are going to be like, fuck. Because if people are blown away now, Come on, Joe. (laughs) They don't know what the fuck they're going to expect down the road. They better hold on. That's what I think. There's so much. Like a week ago, a chef came and then I kind of talked to him. And the chef's friend said, you should take some vacation. She must feel good now that after reviews out. And the chef looked at the friend and said, no, this is just a start. He's like, like, Joe, like expect. Just letting you know, it doesn't get easier. It's just going to get harder. And especially now I have a goal that I know clearly what I want this Kawi to be in long term. So when we talk about your food, how is it different than everyone else's Korean food that's made? The biggest thing is we're not trying to change a dish. Like we're not trying to create or adding another ingredient to make something different or new. We're using a dish that's been on forever and change internally, like change from within. What did you think about the Pete Wells review? I think he was fair. He knows what our intentions are, and I was happy to see that he understood it. Did you want three stars? I did, but if we gotten three star, I would have known that we didn't deserve it. But what if you got like four stars? I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I didn't expect it. I thought about it, but I knew because I it wasn't the menu that I want four star to be. So I was actually really happy 
that you didn't get three stars. Mm -hmm. Mainly because we've spoken at length, me and you, about all the things that need to get better and your frustrations with the things that aren't working well. Mm -hmm. And I felt that if you got three stars, I think it could have from Pete Wells and the New York Times, but it would have validated a lot of the things that won't change. Right. And I know that you want to change. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it was a very accurate review from Pete Wells. Yep. A different star system than Eater. And here's the thing. I think it's a great review. I think it's a three-star restaurant. I really do. I'm privately happy because I know that it's something that you want to like erase. And you're going to get three stars or more when it's going to be the version of Kawi that you feel fully is who you are. For sure. And if you got it through now, I think that would have been a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I agree. You might have gotten a little bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Not that you would have been lazy, but you know what I mean? Yep. And what do you think? How do you explain this, that your food changing from the inside out versus from something what the chefs at Adomex are trying to do, which is pushing the boundaries of what Korean food can look and taste like still in the form of Korean food? How are you changing it from the inside out? I guess the easiest one that I can compare is kimbap. There are so many ways you can do kimbap, but people see it as like this one, like a snack, humble, cheap food. Just changing that concept of that kimbap has to be that cheap food, and then it could be something else like sushi. I think that's part of the change. What do you think kimbap represents? In the meaning, culturally, not uh, just cheap food, but is it Japanese? Kimbap is Korean food. So like sushi, people already know that it's expensive food. Like luxurious ingredients and kimbap's not. So I, don't know, I always have a hard time explaining kimbap. Maybe we'll talk about it another day. I will just let people know that there is so much work and symbolism and meaning in the kimbaps that Unjo is serving. That it's way more than meets the eye. There's a lot of contemporary commentary on Korean food and Japanese sushiyas. We'll just leave it at that. I don't think you need to explain everything, Joe, but there's a lot more. And I'm incredibly proud of the kimbaps that are being served there. I just don't think there's anything like it in America or even the world today. And I, I really mean that. Um, the other thing I really liked about the Pete Wells review is what he didn't like was Momofuku stuff. <laughs> The chicken. You know, that was for Pete Wells, right? Yeah. And not just the chicken. I just think that there are the Momofuku-like elements that I think we needed to have to get you started, whether they continue to remain or not. I like the fact that what he liked was who you were. Mm -hmm. And he could tell the things that were not exactly who you were. I thought that was great. I mean, he's basically saying, Joe... We want more of you and less of Momofuku. Mm -hmm. God bless. Kuruna made me happier. I mean, granted, like, I disagree with him not liking the chicken. And I think he's dead wrong because he doesn't know. He says it's bizarre and it's basically weird. But I think it's actually one of the most Korean dishes we have. It's super Korean. It doesn't get Korean than that. But if he doesn't understand that, I'm not going <laughs> to. He's trying his best to understand Korean food. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that. If you're going to talk about Korean food, you should know. But listen, he's trying. I mean, it's jungle. It's also talking about Korean fried chicken. Mm -hmm. It's a statement on Korean fried chicken. Mm -hmm. It's also a statement about how chicken can be a lot of different things. It's a sort of your version of what like art is and what Korean culture is. This is your interpretation of it. No one's going to tell you what it is. So what's jungle? Jungle is a table side stew. Um, where jjigae is usually prepared beforehand. Cheonggol is usually made, like, boiled and eaten right away. Why did you want to serve it in a French copper pot? Why not? It looks great. And I think it was a little bit of commentary on Joe's past with her friends training. I'm sure it definitely, yeah. <laughs> but you didn't want to put it in a Korean pot or a clay pot or a Japanese pot. No, I don't think I have to... Presented in a Korean or Asian way. If intentions are there, then just nice looking plate. We could have made it look very. You could have made it look very Korean if you made it like a look like traditional jungle. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't seen or ordered her chicken, it looks different. Because and I will say it looks weird in a good way because it doesn't look Korean. 
It doesn't look Japanese, maybe a little bit, but it looks weirdly more French in a copper vessel. Right. And then you serve what with it after the breast and the jungle? So we steam the whole chicken. We take off the breast and use it as a jungle. And we take the rest of the steamed body and we just deep fry it and then toss it in a chicken spice and serve it as a fried chicken with tamuji, which is a pickled daikon. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I recently just installed Sonos a couple months ago in my new apartment, and it makes all the difference. Having surround sound for action movies and for the NBA Finals, it's just the best. It really does enhance the experience, and a dummy like me can install it. I know you guys can as well. It's my favorite way to sort of just listen to stuff as well. It's easy to just change from a TV show to an album that you want to listen to or even a podcast. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. It really does enhance your listening experience. And now, back to the show. What is it about Korean culture and Korean food where everything has to look perfect, but it's not perfect? You know what I mean? Mm-mm. Like, I talked a little bit about it before, but in that way, I almost feel like it separates us and summarizes Korea versus Japan. You know how Japan has to, everything has to be the perfect looking aesthetic. Right. Everything's balanced. Korean, everything is almost perfect, but rough or fucked up intentionally. Intentionally. And I think that's what Korean food is. I know. Mm -hmm. Which is why, well, I can see why he wrote this review. (laughs) He couldn't have been more fucking wrong about the dish. Mm -hmm. If I have to say what is the most Korean dish on this menu, it is this. Mm It is a dish that's not Korean, but in a French vessel, but is Korean. All the flavors are Korean. It's chicken jungle mm-hmm. with almost symmetric lines. And then you serve something that is gnarly. It's a commentary on you, Korea, and like how it's perceived. And it's like, you could have made the whole thing look Japanese. I mean, especially the fried chicken part. It's like that kind of fried chicken is called... Shijang chicken, Shijang means market, and you buy this like three, four dollar, very cheap fried chicken, just deep fried, no batter, nothing. The OG Korean fried chicken. Yeah. Yep, that's what it is. And I listen. He's a great writer, but if he can't appreciate all the work and thought that went into it, I can't be like he doesn't get it. But here's why it's important to do what you're doing, Joe. By you doing this and you talking about this means that the next generation of chefs that want to cook Korean food, they don't have to worry about someone not understanding. You're the fucking first person that's doing this shit. That's why. <laughs> that's why. Now it's just the beginning. Like Now I have to study harder. Like I have to know my shit better. I think that dish is great. I think it's delicious. And it's the most representative to me of modern Korean cooking. You think the kimbap, which it is, I think it's the chicken. Mm -hmm. And I think there's other dishes like it that are going to be similar in its vein. Representative Korea, but we're not in Korea. Mm -hmm. But it's commentary on Korean food. Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's art. When I I did that podcast with Rick Rick Teravanesian and he's saying how he did his art show by cooking pad thai and how he did it in an electric walk and how he just did the whole thing and what pad thai noodles meant and how it was representative of independence from China and how cooking in an electric wok is symbolic of Americans' misunderstanding of wok cookery because it sucks. You can't cook in an electric wok. I look at that dish and when you, when you help construct that, I was like, that to me is your artistic expression. I got it. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I bet you there are some people that won't get it. So yeah, am I giving shit to Pete Wells? I think so. <laughs> A little bit, because I think it's 
He says it's neither spectacular on its own or the combination is bizarre. And I don't think he got it. And that's one reason why at least we have this podcast where we can talk about it. <laughs> he can certainly feel that it was, mm-hmm. but that's one angle. Mm-hmm. That's one angle that's true to him. But our angle, I think, is a different representation. Mm-hmm. Your angle, I should say, not our angle. But I say ours from as a Korean, but yours as the chef. And what it's turned into, I think, is like, it's a beautiful thing. And we had a nice little tap about what that New York Times review meant. And I think we got everyone on the same page as to saying, like, it's going to feel really good when you guys get another review. Mm-hmm. The next day. So New York Times online comes out Tuesday. Tuesday. And, and the next day, Eater comes out. Yep. What happened? I was in the middle of lunch service. And everyone just started congratulating me. And apparently the Eater review came out. And we got three stars. It was a very good review. It's an excellent review. Mm-hmm. And it was the only positive review in the entire Eater yeah, summary I, of Hudson I didn't Yards. know that everyone got review. I thought it was just us because I didn't get to read it till later. But reading that review felt better. Better than New York Times. <laughs> Why? I guess like knowing that both the reviews are out and we're over with it. We can move forward. How important was it for you that Ryan started off with Kang Jung Gejang? I had an idea that he liked it because every time he came, he ordered three times. So I was like, okay, maybe he likes it. <laughs> but you're serving raw crab. Mm-hmm. That's gnarly. It's very gnarly, and it's very surprised that you're serving it's raw, that dish that raw crab in a fancy new shopping mall. Like I would have never thought that that was. The dish that would highlight Kawi. Because to me, it's like one of the dish that I try to keep it very traditional and minimal. And it's delicious. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. If someone that hasn't had raw crab before, how do you tell them to order it? Because it's not in everyone's comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I First, I tell them the texture is softer than what you would think. But it's not... Fishy, so it's more soy front. So I mix the rice in the roll so it's easier for them to eat other than just eating a raw crab. And then I also give them toasted side of kim so they can wrap around it and eat it however they want to eat it. I've never, I've had kangjang gejang. And when we could get the crabs in Major Doma, we'd go to the nyangyong gejang, which is the spicy version. That's my favorite. I've never thought about eating it in kim. That was a real brilliant masterstroke move. Have you ever eaten gejang with kim before? Um, not wrapped around it, but like sprinkled on top. Sprinkled. Mm-hmm. See, but that's a real innovation. I'm telling you. I've had it in Korea. You've had it. Have you ever seen it served with a side of kim before? It's crazy. Think about it. I mean, this just seems so insignificant. Mm-hmm. But when you made that dish, I was like, fuck, Joe. My mind was like, what? I was like, that's so smart. And something so simple has never, maybe it's been done, but not to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you know what's amazing? Now you're going to have all these people that have never had Kangjang Gejang before get it. And now they're all going to think that a side of Kim should be served with them. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fucking cool. I mean, it's really, really cool to see people really, not adventurous people order crab or clam and really going at it. It's nice to see. Them enjoying that. But that's what I think what Pete Wells was saying, like changing it from the inside out. You're still serving Korean food, but even though it's the tiniest little fingerprint, you still put your fingerprint on a dish. And that's why I continue to always think a little bit more and talking to all these art critics because it gives me a better understanding of the significance of something. Like when Jerry Saltz was talking about the color palette that Andy Warhol used, and I've never really appreciated Warhol, but he's like, no one ever did it this way before. You have to understand the significance of him using these certain pastel colors and stuff like that. That was really revolutionary. Mm. And for you to serve Kangjang Gejang with a side of kim, roasted toasted kim, which is like the cousin or very similar to Japanese nori. That was like, I was like, fuck, Joe. <laughs> There's probably a million more things that we can do or you can do with Korean food. So I couldn't have been more static that. The Eater review started off with his love of your Kangjang Gejang. Mm-hmm. 
And for those of you that are like, yeah, we're doing some stuff with Vox Media on a Hulu TV show. This has nothing to do with Ryan Sutton or Eater. And if people are like, oh, he only gives you good reviews. No, that's not true. He's given us a couple horrible, horrible reviews. <laughs> Just read his Nishi review. It's the most, uh, it's pretty, and Pete Wells, that was, that was uh, game changing for us. Um, he also loves your tteokbokki. Mm-hmm. That's Wait, very new. Tea. No one's ever done that before. Oh, I got inspired when I was living in Korea. I went to this Tongin market and this old, old lady, I think she started it. I don't know why, but everyone was serving saucy rice cake where she just used the wok and stir fried it in a chili flakes. And she became this, like a founder of this stir fried rice cake. And I went there to eat it. And it was so good. And hey, we used to serve stir-fried rice cake at Old Noodle Bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah. Thanks for quoting us as inspiration. <laughs> <clears throat> but I wanted to create something in that style. Like spicy, dried rice cake. It's great. Man, that's a lot of fucking work that goes into that dish. So there's a reason why. Why do we only serve it for lunch? It's so time-consuming <laughs> <laughs> to make that coil, rice cake coil. So we only have like 20 to 25 per day. And here's the funny thing and a reminder why I think it's good to have multiple perspectives of review. Ryan Sutton loves your chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he basically says it's like the best dish on the menu. That's why I think I was happy to read Eater's review and it made me feel good. I mean, our one goal before we opened was be the best restaurant despite the location because we were inside of a mall. And it feels so weird to read a review or people saying like, I hate going to Hasenyar, but I'm only going there for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, we're, we're getting there. Um, you got to get to service. And we will continue to talk as you grow. And I think... There's a very important chef that reached out to me earlier today, and I spoke to them, and they said that your podcasts, uh, yours specifically, was incredibly impactful for them. And they have a few more restaurants uh, than you at this point in their career. And I think that one of the positives about doing this podcast, even though a lot of different people in different walks of life are listening to this, but there's other chefs that are going through problems and... For you to be so honest about your shortcomings and their struggles, I think, is incredibly powerful. So I don't tell you enough. I think you're one of the toughest, grittiest people I know. And to say that you don't break is not true. I think you break all the time. But you have the fortitude and resilience to put yourself back together piece by piece every day. And I think the world of you, you know that. And I will always be there for you to help. But... I don't think you realize that you've been an incredible source of inspiration for a lot of other chefs and a lot of people are rooting for you. And what would you want to tell to a young cook that's listening? Because I've never used this podcast as a beacon (laughs) to to talk about uh, working for us, but fuck it. It's our podcast. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Why should they, why should they think about working for you? Because I really believe Kawi is more than a restaurant. Kawi will be the future Korean restaurant where people think of certain Korean food. The foundation is from Kawi and we're going to build it. You know what's amazing? If you don't know Joe, that's the least Unjoe Park statement I've ever heard <laughs> in my fucking life. You just called, you just basically said, yeah, we're going to sweep you motherfuckers in four games. <laughs> that's, that's why people may not know the, the fierce determination in Anjo Park, but I certainly see it and I have nothing but uh, real positive thoughts about where you're going to take this and all the struggles and knowing full well, this is the hard part now. Mm-hmm. The hard part's just started. Just started. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joe. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was my conversation with Chef Unjo Park of Kawi in Hudson Yards. Big congratulations to her and the whole team, Aura, the GM, all the sous chefs, the dishwashers. It's been a very hard journey to get here. Couldn't be prouder of you. And I'm sure we're going to be doing this post-opening diaries probably again in the next month or so. 
as we learn more about how they sort of handle the first year of opening a new restaurant in Hudson Yards. So big thanks. Um, I'm going to get to a Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. Thank you again for sending all those in. The first, I guess the only question I'm going to answer today is by Elliot Lesser. Setting aside upcoming guests you're planning to have on the show, if you could have anyone on the podcast, a few moonshots, who would you love to have on? What would you talk about? Oh, man, that's a really hard question, Elliot. Um, I really don't even know, (laughs) oftentimes until like week to week, who we're talking to or what we're going to talk about. We just went on this sort of run of artists from Jerry Saltz to his wife, Roberta Smith, and then Rick Rick Teravenesian. I think that we're going to continue to try to get artists on this podcast. Probably my top wish to get on this podcast would be Jeff Koons. He is an artist that is really loved and hated and incredibly successful. And I don't quite understand everything he does or how he does it, but he certainly is polarizing. And I would love to pick his brain and understand how he makes art, why he does what he does. So if anyone knows Jeff Koons, please let him know that someone that knows nothing about art would like to speak to him. Other than Jeff Koons, I don't know. There's so many people. So off the top of my head, I probably think I would love to get Pete Budedge. How do you pronounce his name? Pete Budedge? Edge Edge? Pete Budedge. I can't pronounce his name. Fuck. Pete Budedge. That's it. I really like him. I think that he's going to have some office. I would love for him to um, really prosper in government somehow, other than just being the, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I haven't really done a deep dive in any of the candidates, but he seems to be the one that right now that I'm sort of most curious about. And I'd love to get him on to talk about his service to this country and where he wants to take this country. And just, he seems like a fucking smart guy that's very practical. I've been reading this book by Tara Westover called The Educated, and it sold like, I don't know how many millions of copies, but a lot of people have read it. I would love to get her on. Um, Her story is remarkable. Who else? I would love to get Michael Pollan on to have him talk about his most recent book, How to Change Your Mind. It came out like a year ago. I think it's now in paperback. Colorado just decriminalized psilocybin, so hallucinogenic mushrooms. And he's the last person in the world anyone would expect to do guided trips and to do hallucinogenics. And that's all the more reason why I think he's someone that should be listened to because If you're dealing with depression and mental illness or even the prospect of terminal illness, there's sufficient evidence that it can be incredibly positive for your outlook on life and understanding your situation. So I'm all for that. I would love to talk to him in depth. And he's been on a ton of podcasts. He did a long one with Joe Rogan. Love to check out his thoughts just on food in general. He just is a fascinating figure to me because he's like the last person you would ever expect. And I guess the most, the biggest moonshot would probably be Bruce Springsteen. I really admire him as an individual more than the music, and I'm a big fan of his music, but I think how he's lived his life and how he sort of carried himself and been open about his struggles with depression and mental illness and seeing a psychiatrist, that's not easy to do. And if someone like Bruce Springsteen can be open about that, that would be amazing. And if you're going to say, Bruce, you might as well throw someone like Beyonce out there as well. Those are moonshots. Highly doubt that'll ever happen, but who knows? And because this is the podcast that is on the Ringer Network, I am infatuated with Bill Belichick. Absolutely, utterly infatuated with him. And I just would love to get him on because I think as an individual, he is not the stoic, somber quiet coach that's um, doesn't really seem to be the person that he is in a private life. You know, the more I learn about him, I don't know if I agree with everything he does in his personal life, but I just find his mind to be completely fascinating, especially how he's created his team, the New England Patriots. I really very much admire him. And if you're going to talk about Bill Belichick, I would fucking love to get Craig Popovich. He's someone that I could definitely talk food and wine about, and he just seems like an incredibly good guy and someone that I would like to pattern my life after because he just seems to have done it the right way and been a good person all along the way. So if anyone knows Coach Popovich, Coach Pop, 
Uh, I love you with all my heart. So love to have you on the podcast. Uh, anyway, that would be my uh, running list of moonshot guests. I don't know if any of that will ever happen, but Elliot Lesser, thank you for sending them in. Thank you guys uh, for listening to this podcast. We'll have more post-opening diaries. Stay tuned next week. We've got a great, great guest. Give us five stars, however you rate this, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Much love. Thank you, guys. Take it easy.